you know, it seems the nature of preaching through the book of Revelation is once you get past one controversial passage, there's not a respite. You can't say, woof, got past that. The next passage is something else that brings challenges. But I trust that my approach tonight is pretty easy to follow and very straightforward. We're, there's five verses that we're going to consider tonight. And our approach is going to be this way. We're going to examine three things. We're going to examine, number one, what John saw in verse 1. We're going to examine what John heard in verses 2 and 3. And we're going to examine what he describes at the end of verse 3 through verse 5. So I think that's pretty easy to follow. What John saw, what John heard, and what John describes. Well, let's get into it. What John saw, verse 1. Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion. And with him, 144,000, having his father's name written on their foreheads. What did John see? John saw a lamb standing on Mount Zion. Well, there is considerable debate as to whether this is an earthly scene or whether this is a heavenly scene. Is John seeing the Lamb standing on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, the capital of Israel, or is John seeing something in the heavens? That's the question, that's the issue of controversy. Is this an earthly vision or is this a heavenly vision? Well, without getting into all the details of the various arguments. I hope you won't be too uh, put off by me simply staying, saying that I believe what John is seeing is a heavenly vision, and let me give you five reasons that I think that that is true. I believe John is seeing a heavenly vision as opposed to an earthly one. Reason number one, that each time in the book of the Revelation, when the Lamb is seen, he is always in heaven. When the Lamb is portrayed in the book of the Revelation, he's always portrayed in heaven. Reason number two. He's not just standing on Mount Zion, but with him are 144,000 who are described as having his father's name written on their foreheads. He is with the 144,000. John refers to them in verse 3 as those, at the end of verse 3, let me see, as those who were, as those who were redeemed from the earth. The very last phrase of verse 3. He refers to the 144,000 as those who were redeemed from the earth. 
And it seems to me that what John hears in verse 2, and what John hears in verse 2 interprets what he saw in verse 1. Does that make sense to you? What John hears in verse 2, I heard a voice from heaven. That's what he heard. So what John hears in verse 2 interprets what he sees in verse 1. He says, I heard a voice from heaven. And consistency suggests that what he saw in verse 1 was also in heaven. Reason number 4. Hebrews chapter 12. I want to read a couple of verses there. Hebrews 12 and verse 22 speaks of Mount Zion as the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Let's turn to Hebrews 12. I'll begin to read at verse 18 for context's sake. The writer of Hebrews is writing, he says, For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched, and that burned with fire, and to blackness and darkness and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, so that those who heard it begged that the, wor- that the word should not be spoken to them any more. For they could not endure what was commanded, and if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. But, but you have not, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. Verse 22 is the verse that's pertinent to our consideration. It speaks of Mount Zion as the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. I have the benefit of knowing what I'm going to preach, so I'm worshiping and singing with you the hymns that have been chosen. And the hymns that we sang tonight are consistent with this understanding. Jesus is reigning in heaven right now, not someday. And let's turn to Psalm 2 for further support of that. Psalm 2. Says, why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath 
and distressed them in his deep displeasure. Notice verse 6 and 7. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the end of the earth for your possession. God has set King Jesus on his holy hill of Zion. So, there are five reasons that I believe what John is seeing is a heavenly vision. King Jesus is standing there, back to Revelation 14. Behold a lamb standing on Mount Zion, a picture of majesty, of victory, of conquering, of overcoming. And saints tonight of all the ages should take heart and not despair, for we share in the victory of the Lamb. So the location of Mount Zion in heaven is where the 144,000 reside as the redeemed of the earth, according to verse 3. And why I think John has been given this vision at this particular time is because the discussion in chapter 3 was about the beast and his persecution and his hatred and his opposition to Christ and to his church and to any who would follow him. And if we're not instructed properly, we might think that we're on the losing side. But John says, in contrast to the beast, who was raging in anger and wrath and opposition to God and to the church, here in verse 1, the Lamb is standing on Mount Zion. Victorious. The rule of the Antichrist will end because the Lamb is standing on Mount Zion. He is the triumphant, conquering king, ruling over his world in power and dominion and in might. So that's what we see initially is in terms of what John saw. But he didn't just see a Lamb standing on Mount Zion. He says... And with him, 144,000 having his father's name written on their foreheads. 144,000. Well, this isn't the first time that we've encountered the 144,000. You remember, we were first introduced to them in chapter 7. And this is the company of the redeemed throughout the ages. This is not a literal number, but a representative number symbolizing completeness. It's the number of the 12 tribes and the 12 apostles multiplied by a thousand. You do the math. 12 times 12 is 144 times a thousand is 144,000. But it is the same number of those who were sealed in Revelation chapter 7 and verse 4. Listen to this. 
John says, And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. Again, who are the 144,000? They are the saints of all the ages. And there in verse 4, we're told that the seal is on their foreheads. I heard the number of those who were sealed, it says. And in verse 2, it says, I saw another angel ascending from the earth, having the seal of the living God. And he cried, cried with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea. So these 144 are sealed. And what is the idea of being sealed here? Well, being sealed here is being sealed, protected against the judgment that is going to come upon the earth. Their names are written on their foreheads, it says in chapter 14 and verse 1. The 144,000 having his father's name written on their foreheads. What does that convey? Well, it conveys ownership. They are the redeemed. They are those who've been purchased out of the earth. I think uh, a lot of the easy believism would fall away in our world, at least the understanding of it, if we simply would understand what the word redeemed means. We sing that. Churches sing that. But very few fully understand what the concept is. To be redeemed is to be purchased by blood. We are Christ's purchased possession. And if we are his purchased possession, he has redeemed us, then our life is not our own anymore. We're not in charge. He is. He's the one who tells us how we're to live and what we're to do and what we're not to do. But so many people have this idea that they can believe in Jesus and sing, I am redeemed, I am redeemed, and yet think that their life is still under their control, that they're autonomous, they can do with their life as they please. It's, it is a contradiction. So it, com it communicates, it conveys ownership. And it says, the 144,000 having his father's name written on their foreheads. They are with the lamb on Mount Zion. It's speaking of identification. That, that God the Father and God the Son are not ashamed to own us as their children. We are the redeemed. We have this identification. And certainly fellowship and communion is also being conveyed in that imagery. Notice that the two groups, the group in Revelation 7, 4, and the group here in chapter 14, they are identical. They're the same group, not two different groups, the same group. Their total number, 144,000, I don't want to totally minimize that number. What's the significance of that number? Well, the 144,000 that were sealed in chapter 7 and verse 4 are the same 144,000 that are with 
the Lamb on Mount Zion. What does that mean? All who were sealed were kept. Not a single one was lost. Isn't that good news tonight? In a world that is becoming more hateful toward us, more against us, opposed to us, in our Christ, in the church, and his gospel. He will keep us. Not one will be missing. Everyone for whom Christ died will end up in glory. That's the good news. The total number indicates that not one is lost of all the people the Father has given to the Son. John 10, verse 29. The Antichrist, in all of his power and all of his wrath, was unable to lead a single one of the 144,000 away, for their names were inscribed in the palm of God's hand. We read about that in Isaiah 49, verse 16. In fact, we sang about that this morning in corporate worship. So that's what John saw. The Lamb standing on Mount Zion and with him the 144,000. Now let's examine what he heard. What did John hear? Notice verse 2. And I heard a voice from heaven. He heard a voice from heaven. And then there are these two descriptive phrases. I heard a voice from heaven like the voice of many waters and like the voice of loud thunder. Why the emphasis of loudness? Like the voice of many waters. I've had the experience of being at one of the seven wonders of the world, Victoria Falls. And if you're there, you cannot hold a conversation with the person standing beside you because of the sound of the water coming over the falls. It is loud. And when John says, I heard a voice from heaven like the voice of many waters, that imagery comes to my mind. And like the voice of loud thunder. So loud because of the sheer number of people who are contributing to that voice that John heard. How large is that number? John says in chapter 7 and verse 9, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, people, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands. A great multitude, which no man can number. And a second thing he heard, the sound of harpists playing their harps, the end of verse 2. So he heard a voice from heaven, and he heard the sound of harpists playing. 
with their harps. And then there's a third thing that is implied that he heard, and that is a new song being sung before the throne in verse 3. They sang, as it were, a new song before the throne. Now, John doesn't say he heard it, but I think by implication we've got to conclude that he heard that as well. They sang, as it were, a new song before the throne. I doubt that this is another new song different than the new song that was sung and referred to in chapter 5 and verse 9. So let's look back there, chapter 5 and verse 9. It says, And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood, out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. So I think the new song, or the song, John says, they sang as it were a new song. I don't think new as opposed to different from the new song of chapter 5 and verse 9, but the same song because the context is the same. Who are they singing to? They're singing praise and worship to him who redeemed them. It is a picture of exuberant worship, a scene of the redeemed of all the ages singing praises of Christ, to Christ, for his work of redemption. I've had people comment about the exuberant corporate worship that they observe when they come here as visitors. They say, boy, the people really sing. Well, if you're redeemed, how can you not sing? Right? Now, I've been in churches. It was pitiful. I mean, literally pitiful. And as I looked around, I saw men weren't, didn't, didn't have a book open, didn't have a hymn book open, had no intentions of singing. And I thought, what, what, is, what is being conveyed here? Here people are going through the form of worship but denying the power thereof. They, they have no interest. They have no desire. They have not been taught. This is the opportunity to raise your voice in praise and worship to him who's worthy. And I'm glad that that is very conspicuous around here. And what it says is, we are the redeemed. And let the redeemed of the Lord say so. And we delight to do that. Well, we've examined what John saw and what John heard. Now let's examine what he describes. What is he going to describe for us? Let me read verse 3, and when we get to the end of verse 3, he's going to make mention of the redeemed from the earth. And then verses 4 and 5, 
he's going to give us a fourfold description of the redeemed. So let me read again verse 3. They sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. These are the ones who were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These were redeemed from among men, being firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. As I was reading verse 3, I, I was reminded that I did not make mention of that phrase. No one could learn that song except the 144,000. Perhaps I did uh, speak to it without directly tying it to this. It's those who don't know the Lord, they don't have a desire to sing. They don't know how to sing. They don't even know the very fundamentals of what corporate worship is. It's worshiping to the Lord, first and foremost. And it is what only the redeemed do. But... John is going to give us a fourfold description of the redeemed. And what is that description? Let me give you four characteristics, four descriptions, and then we'll speak to them. Number one, they are pure. Number two, they are followers of the Lamb. Number three, they are first fruits. And finally, they are blameless. So let's take them one by one. Notice he says, these are the ones who were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. And at first thought, we would think that he is speaking of moral purity, of sexual purity. But um, most commentators do not think that that is what is being referred to here. It's getting closer to this idea. You remember when... Paul was writing to the Corinthians, he said this in chapter 11 and verse 2, I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. So what is meant here by this description? They are the ones who were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. It means purity of spiritual dedication to the Lord to live without being seduced and deceived by this anti-Christ philosophy that pervades our culture. That's what it means. Being dedicated to the Lord, striving to be loyal in our relationship to the Lord. Secondly, he says, these are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Jesus said in Mark chapter 10 and verse 30, 38, anyone who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. He said in John chapter 10, I know my sheep, they hear my voice, and they do what? They follow me. They follow me. 
The second characteristic of the redeemed is that they are followers of the Lord. Now, John uses the present tense use of the verb there when he says they are the ones who follow the Lamb. Present tense. That is their life habit. That is, their life is characterized by this. Stressing the ongoing, consistent commitment to a life of obedience. He's describing the redeemed. And I think when we come to a passage like this that is giving us a description of the redeemed, it behooves us to lay aside our preconceived notions, any sense that we think that we are right with God, and say, okay, here is an objective standard that I can measure my life by. And I want to really know. I really want to know, not because someone says I'm saved, not because I think I want to be saved, not because I hope I'm saved, but am I really of the redeemed? So measure your life by this. Do you have a fundamental commitment to obey the Lord Jesus Christ and his word? Regardless of where it leads you. That's what it says. These are the ones who follow the lamb wherever he goes. Wherever he goes. Not, I know young people that will talk about wanting to know the will of God for their life. Lord, if you'll tell me what it is you want me to, to do, then I'll, I'll do it. No. Lord, I'm committed to doing whatever it is your will is for me to do. Not let me know what it is and then I'll decide what I'm going to do. No. This fundamental commitment to obedience. Now, the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord and though he fall and he will fall, but he won't stay in that state, for the Lord upholdeth him with his right hand. We're, we're not, I'm not, the standard here, the description here is not of sinless perfection, but it is the commitment to a life of obedience. I want to be known as a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to follow his word. I want to follow his precepts. I want to be known as one of his followers. I'm not ashamed to be known as one of his followers. That's what it means. The third description, he says, These were redeemed from among men, being first fruits to God and to the Lamb. First fruits to God and to the Lamb. And I think there's a connection between the first two descriptions and this one. And let me explain what I mean. You recall in the Old Testament, the first fruits of a harvest were offered to God. God commanded the first fruits. People were to offer those to God to acknowledge God's ownership and their stewardship of all that he had given to them. And in like manner, the rest of the harvest was his as well and was to be used and employed with a desire to please him in its use. 
So what does it mean that we are first fruits to God and to the Lamb? That means that we belong to Him in totality. We're to live for Him who died for us. Not just for a season of life, not for a period of life, but the totality of our life is surrendered to Him. We live for Him. We're no longer living for ourselves and our own desires. I think that's what it means. And then, what does he say? The last description in verse 5. And in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. What's this fourth description? It's blameless. Blameless. You say, wow, I'm not sure I, in all honesty, can say I'm blameless. Well, how can a redeemed child with a clear conscience, willing to examine their life in the light of this text, how can we say we're, we're blameless? Well, we are, notice it says, without fault before the throne of God. We are blameless as redeemed children of God before the throne because the ground of our profession is not our record, our work record, our merit. It is Jesus and his blood. We can, we can with a clear conscience say, I am blameless before the throne of God because I am trusting him and I am trusting my never-dying soul to him and him alone who lived a blameless life in my place. Right? That is it. That's it. That's the only way we can be blameless before the throne of God is through the imputed righteousness of Christ. He lived the life we did not live he earned righteousness for us, and his perfect life of obedience has been credited to our account, and therefore before God, we're blameless. And that is an amazing, amazing gospel truth that not a lot of Christians understand. And if you don't understand that, you will find yourself on a performance treadmill Work and 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 trying to earn acceptance before God. That doesn't mean that we quit working. Doesn't mean that we don't have anything to do here. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 12 tells us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. But the next verse says, For God is working in us both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. So we work at sanctification. We cooperate with the Spirit of God. We discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. But the point here is, this is what characterizes the redeemed. They are blameless. They're blameless. And because we have a blameless standing before God... Because of the merits of Jesus Christ, 
We seek to live a life that is blameless. We strive to live as much as possible in the light of our standing before God. And that not that the, the challenge of the Christian life? To bring our practice in, in cl- closer and closer proximity to our standing? It's one thing to say, well, this is my standing. It's another thing to be living out here completely disconnected from my standing. And that calls into question whether you have right standing with God. But if you have right standing with God, you're blameless before the throne, then your life is going to give evidence to that. You're pursuing holiness, without which no man's going to see the Lord, the Bible tells us. We're seeking to please Him with our life. So here we have this passage set before us. John tells us what he saw. He tells us what he heard. And then he tells us and gives us a description of the redeemed. And I trust that this has been helpful tonight as we've thought this through and give consideration to this. You know, the Word of God is... It's more, than, it's more than just food for our souls. It is the means of grace that God has given the preaching of the Word of God for our growth and sanctification. More than any other means. And this is why it's so critically important to be present at the preaching times of the church and to set yourself under the preaching because it is what God has promised to bless and use in our sanctification and in our growth in grace. So I would challenge you. This is a short passage. I think most everyone here could go home tonight or in the morning when you get up, turn to, t- turn to this passage and remember the three points. What did John see? What did John hear? And what did John describe? Walk through that passage. That's how the Word of God is profitable to us. It's profitable for instruction, for correction, for what? Four things there. So, may God help us to appropriate the Word of God and profit from it. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for tonight. Thank you for your Word. Thank you for reminding us that in this world of confusion, this world where evil seems to be pervasive and the world seems to be growing darker, that King Jesus is standing in glory. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords, and he is ordering history after his predetermined will. All things are working after the counsel of him, and we rejoice in that this evening. We thank you for this time of examination as well, as John is describing the redeemed. And I pray that the Spirit of God would aid us as we would be honest in our self-examination, that we would be willing to look into the mirror of the Word of God and not turn away, and so thereby deceiving ourselves, but to look into the mirror of the Word of God and to be changed thereby. Do it for our eternal good and do it for the honor and glory of him who loved us and gave himself for us. Amen.